we are very excited to start this important conversation. My name is Nahama Bass, and I have the privilege of being the Senior Director of the Family Violence Services Program at Met Council. It is my honor to introduce our CEO, David Greenfield, who will emcee the event this evening. David has been committed to public service for most of his career. Many of you know him and his incredible work as a local council member in Brooklyn. Under David's incredible leadership, Met Council's programs and services have, gone, have grown exponentially. We, are, we now provide more services to more people than ever before, impacting thousands each month. We are grateful to have leadership and skills as we continue to support the needs of our communities. David, thanks very much again for coming this evening. Thank you very much, and uh, thank you, Nahama Bax. Nahama is our senior director of our family violence program. You should get to know her. She's a real tzaddikist who does incredible work every day with uh, an amazing team of folks, and uh, really just want to welcome everyone uh, on behalf of Met Council and Met Council's Borough Park Chesed Center. I'm thrilled to welcome everyone to this special event focusing on strengthening Shalom bias. My name is David Greenfield. I I'm honored to serve as the CEO of Met Council, and at Met Council, we're focused on meeting the needs of the from community in many ways, from assistance applying for benefits to entitlements to the kosher food that we provide all year round. And we have ten different programs, including geriatric department supporting the needs of the elderly, Holocaust survivor program, elder abuse, family violence program, benefit services, benefit access, and of course, just recently within the last year. We realized that the need in Borough Park was so significant that we opened up a Borough Park Chesed Center right here on 14th Avenue. We're serving over 600 people a week, and one thing I'm very proud of at Met Council is that we don't charge for anything. It's all 100% free, there's no fees, there's no charges. We really, uh, it's really core to what we do. And in fact, when groups come to us and they say, hey, will you partner with us? I always tell them, look, unless it's free, we're not partnering with you. We're not in the business of charging people uh, for things. We're just trying to help the community. I also want to recognize uh, uh, Judith Zellemeyer, who is our homegrown executive director of the Bar Park Chesed Center. Judy, you want to just wave in the back, people can see you. If you need anything in Bar Park, you can ask him. We have some flyers on the Chesed Center and what Met Council does. Hopefully, you'll take a look at that and it's available too. I want to thank all the staff at Met Council who spent many hours bringing together this really amazing evening. I want to thank Hannah Lupian, Avi Spitzer, Ben Siegel, Rob Newman, Malka Himlach, Esther Teilbaum, Carly Lynn, Suzanne Sursko, Judith Zellemeyer, and of course, Nechama Bax. A lot of people work very hard to make this happen for you tonight. I also want to thank Barry Spitzer, who's a very dear friend and a wonderful Oscar who serves as the district manager of this community board. It so generously gives us the space on a consistent level. We really, really appreciate it. And I want to thank Shalom Task Force for partnering with us, as well as UJA for their partnership and all the work that they do. I have uh, the privilege tonight of introducing our incredible panelists. And we have tremendous experts from the community to help us learn how to strengthen Shalom Bias. I'm going to introduce each panelist briefly, but please take a look at their flyer for the full uh, bios. And this is this is really amazing. And I think that you know one thing that everybody has in common, no matter who you are, and no matter where you've been in life, everybody can always strengthen Shalom Bias, right? It's just you know you can never have enough money, you can never have enough Shalom Bias. That's uh, true on on both ends. And so we're really excited tonight. We have some tremendous tremendous people in the community. Uh, I'm just going to start in order from left to right. Rabbi Dr. Ben Torsky holds a PhD in psychology from the University of Pittsburgh. He has spent much of his career dedicated to focusing on helping couples navigating through many shalom bias challenges. Rabbi Dr. Torsky is teaching faculty at the Torsky Coaching and Counseling Institute, training a Scud and Rabbanim, Hassan and Kyle teachers in their roles in guiding couples with issues in shalom bias. 
Uh, he is literally teaching the next generation of people who are helping people with shalom bias. So thrilled to have him. Thank you and welcome Rabbi Dr. Torsky. Please give him a big round of applause. Rabbi Ben-Sian Shapir is the founder of the Ferris B'nai Torah, Yeshiva Program for Working People, TBT, and theschmooze.com, world-renowned. They literally get uh, hits from all over the world on theschmooze.com. Rabbi Shapir is the creator of the Shmooze, which is heard by over 10,000 people each week, bringing Torah and Hashkafa to Yid and everywhere. Rabbi Shapir recently published his new book, Strengthening Shalom Bayes, 10 Really Dumb Mistakes That Very Smart Couples Make, a Torah-based guide to successful marriage, and the first 100 people who registered are receiving that book tonight. Thank you, Rabbi Ben Sion Shafir. Let's give him please a big round of applause. We appreciate all that we do. Faye Wolber, LCSW-R. Do not ask me what that actually stands for, but apparently it's a very high level of certification. Has worked for the Jewish Board for many years. She's renowned in many capacities, including being the director of the Borough Park Clinic, according to the Family Violence Services, and is presently the director of community engagement for Mishkan. Faye lectures and facilitates groups on healthy, unhealthy relationships, healthy communications, cultural competence, and family violence. She maintains a renowned private practice with a special focus on treating people of difficulty in their life and relationships, often because they have experienced trauma. Really thrilled to have her. Everyone knows Faye, and we are so grateful for her tonight. Please give Faye a big round of applause. <laughs> Esther Teitelbaum, LMSW, is a licensed social worker on the Met Council Family Violence Services Program. Esther received her master's degree from Turo College and a special interest in working with families and those impacted by trauma. Esther has spent many years engaging with families in the firm community, whether it's working with college or supporting parents to help their children succeed both academically and socially. And she's a tremendous part of Met Council's in-house family violence team and really uh, grateful to have her with us tonight. Thank you so much, Esther. So the questions that were asked tonight, just to be crystal clear, were submitted directly by the public for this panel. We're obviously not going to give people's names and identifying information out of respect for the privacy and confidentiality of people. The format for tonight's event is going to be as follows. We're going to start off with a brief explanation of each panelist's view of Shalom Bias. We're then going to move on to the community questions that all of you submitted. Each panelist will have three minutes to answer each question. It is my unfortunate task to keep panelists on time so that we can get through a whole lot of information tonight. So I'm going to nudge respectfully to our panelists if they're running over three uh, minutes. And we're going to start with, this is our question to be clear, just a set of baseline. And every other question is questions that were pre-submitted by the community. And so we're going to start first with the question, and we're going to start first from left to right by Dr. Ben Sionatorsky. We're going to ask everyone the same question. What is Shalom Bias? Shalabayas for me is bringing my wife to this event so that I, I'm careful to not say anything that I shouldn't. Um, Shalabayas is the peace and the tranquility that dominate the home. And the, the, the husband and the wife form the parental unit for the children. And it, it, this is not just a statement about the relationship as far as the children go, but it's a relationship between them themselves. It is two halves of a single unit. And the more that I recognize that my spouse is what gives me shlemus, that that's how much I'm going to appreciate it and how much I'm going to embrace it. And this show bias is a lifelong work where men and women are, are constructed differently, 
Our bodies are different, our minds are different, our thinking patterns are different, our preferences are different, and that's something that we have to make peace with. Being at peace with somebody who's identical to you may not be a very big challenge. Being at peace with somebody who's different, that's where, that's where the, the secret is. I was just saying to, to Shakir earlier, two people who like the same flavor ice cream are not guaranteed to have shalom just because they share a preference. If they can deal with the, with the fact that they are different and that they disagree and they can they can handle those things, that's when that's when you see shalom bias in its in its true colors. What is shalom bias? Okay, thank you. Thank you. Okay, if I had to sum up the, I would say there are three pillars to a successful marriage. There's commitment, love, and learning to live together. Commitment comes from the knowledge that Hashem doesn't make mistakes. Hashem arranged for the two of you to be together because you are fit to be together. And that commitment will allow you to remain focused on the marriage, remain focused on working on the marriage. Love is the day-to-day -day glue. Can we get less feedback? Because I have ADD and I get this. I'm going to shut this. I'm sorry, guys. Anyway, love is the, the glue on a day-to-day -day basis. The glue that keeps the marriage together. Try that again. I try it again without the... Yeah, could we turn off all the lights? Yeah, we're good now? Yeah, Okay. are good. On a day-to-day basis, that which keeps the marriage going is the love. Love is that that. You know, love is everything that goes into making a marriage, the, from the small little gestures to the regular date nights to the, everything that requires for a couple to stay in love. But the third part of marriage is the most difficult. Many couples are committed to marriage. Many couples even manage to create and keep a bond of love. But it's the learning to live together, that ability to recognize that different human beings, by definition, will be different, have different ways of doing things, different approaches and being able to embrace another person's approach and being able to accept that my spouse will be radically different than me and not trying to change them often is the three the most difficult. So again, three, commitment, love, and learning to live together. Thank you. Okay. Hi, thanks all for coming. Um, so I see Shalom Bias as mutuality. People value each other, respect each other, if something wonderful happens in your life, you want to tell your spouse. If something terrible happens, you want to tell your spouse. If you're worried about something, you want to tell your spouse. And your spouse knows with all of those things, you'll listen to them. And if they know you listen and you know they listen to you, that's shalom bias. Shalom bias is harmony between husband and wife, working together to reach common, to reach goals and aspirations which can't be reached without the other. Uh, having respect and care for the other and for ourselves. Marriage is like a light bulb. It shines light on our deficiencies and it forces us to confront our weaknesses, our fears, and our vulnerabilities. We often come into marriage expecting that the other is gonna complete us, make us whole, but the only way to achieve shalom bias, I believe, is to look inward and fix ourselves. So often people get into fights because they are not happy with themselves, but when you are able to be happy with who you are, 
the level of fighting is drastically diminished. Conflicts are part of, conflicts not to be confused with fights, are part of a marriage because we just think differently. And the way that we deal with them can make the bonds between us even stronger and healthier. And at times, we may fight, we may need, we may hurt each other with our, you know, our feelings, but um, we need to repair, and that in and of itself takes humility. But if we can do it right, then we can bring our marriage to a stronger place and, and, and a greater connection. And in order to maintain shalom lives, we must put forth constant effort. It's a lifetime work. No matter whether you're married five years, 10 years, 25 years plus, just like a pilot can't fly a plane on autopilot, we don't run our marriages just letting them uncruise. We have to steer and navigate. Some days there's the, the sky is clear, some days there's turbulence. We go through like I'm sorry. Thank you. No, we appreciate it. You, you'll have plenty of opportunities to answer many questions. Sorry to be that person. But someone's got to do it. Rabbi Schaefer, I'm going to ask you the first of a series of questions. We ordered the questions and we chose who should respond to them, but I just want to be clear. All these questions came from folks who asked us a question beforehand. Here's the question verbatim for Rabbi Schaefer. Very popular question. How can I get my spouse to change? Specifically, are there things that you can ask your spouse to change, and what is not your business? For example, if I don't like the way my spouse dresses, is that something that's okay or not? Or are there other issues that are okay to ask them to change? And if so, how can they change? Okay, just three minutes. <laughs> okay, notice the ladies laughed. The gentleman didn't laugh. Okay, we're not, we're not going there. Okay. Uh, I, before I give a marriage seminar, I often give out a sheet. And one of the main questions on the sheet is, if you could change one thing in your marriage, just one thing that would radically change your marriage, what would it be? Now to tell you the truth, I have a Yetzirah. And that's why I write that question on the sheet. Because I know exactly what the answer is gonna be. It's gonna be one thing about my spouse. If my spouse were neater or more, less rigid, more on time, less on time, I know invariably it's gonna be one thing about my spouse. Ladies and gentlemen, every single spouse, I believe, comes into marriage with an absolute need, an emotional need to change their spouse. It's incredibly common, it's incredibly pervasive, and it obviously, what? Never works. As a matter of fact, I have a little theory about marriage. If you look at marriages that are good, I think there's sort of like you could watch it. They'll be okay, okay for 20 years, then suddenly the marriage gets much better. Why is that? For 20 years, she tries to change him. For 20 years, he tries to change her. They try, they try, finally, and he's like, ah, she'll never change. Ah, she'll never change. They give up, and suddenly he's so much nicer. Suddenly she's so much easier to get along with. And that is one of the great secrets. You're not going to change your spouse, but you know why? Because what you're trying to change is a temperament. It's a nature. It's inborn. It's part of the human being, and you're not going to change them. You're going to try. You're going to desperately try. You're going to go to Shear after Shear. By the way, if I wanted people to come to a Shear, what would I, what would I title it? How to make money. How to finally get your spouse to change. Oh, and every, exactly. it's yeah. jam-packed, jam-packed. And what's the answer? You can't. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. Faye Wilbur, let me ask you this question. 
And this, once again, comes from the audience. What is the key to not getting angry or upset at one another? And the continuation of that question is, how do you fight fear? Good question. And uh, how not to go to bed angry? So there's a lot of questions over there. We'll give you three minutes, please, for those questions. Okay, so um, we're all human. We all have feelings. We all get upset sometimes. If Moshe Rabbeinu could get upset, Kalbach over me. Um, so we have to be realistic about ourselves. We have to be realistic about our spouses. We are all imperfect. We need to learn how to control our feelings, how to express our feelings. As Esther said before, self-awareness, how to recognize what we're feeling. If we can recognize it and put words to it, then we can deal with it and handle it better. So how do we communicate? Listen to the words, listen to the body language, see what's being said or not said. See, see how you speak. Not the content necessarily, it's the tone, it's the volume, right? We can be mean and nasty in a very flat tone. It sounds worse if we're yelling. Um, how are we sitting? Crossing my arms and being erect means I'm not really listening to you. I'm just like in my zone. So that's the message that the person, your husband or wife, is going to hear when they look at you. Um, Decide, is this important? Is it going to be important in five weeks, in five months, in five years? If it's not, give it up. Like, get over it. Like, it doesn't matter. If you can say it doesn't matter, it's not all that important, then you can have all this emotional energy to care about each other and to go to bed happy and smiling and to say, I love you, sleep well. Those are nice words at the end of the day. For everybody to hear um, and learning how to express your feelings in a way that they can be received well is very important. Thank you very much. Esther Teitelbaum, here's a uh, popular question. How do I get my irresponsible husband to behave more responsibly? Wouldn't it, be, wouldn't it feel great if we could snap our fingers and change someone? I, I know who I would change. <laughs> the truth is we can't force anyone to do anything. And this is, an, this is a common problem. We, truth is life circumstances and challenges, we hope, hopefully will make the person more responsible. But for the here and now, we need to understand where this person is coming from and what's driving the behavior. We can manage the conflict if we can understand it. It's not our job to change someone, but we can understand, we can communicate our fears and our needs and our concerns to the person. We can say, I know you like to drive fast, but I get scared when you do. We want to communicate without, some, without blaming or accusing. If you, Still going, keep going, keep going. If you, if you see you're going to be late, time, can you please just call and let me know so I won't worry about you? And then thank him for coming through. But um, when we get criticized, we get defensive, and it's difficult not to get into arguments. So we don't want to get into that type of dialogue, because I can tell you from experience, I've done that way too many times. <laughs> um, but there are levels of being responsible, and driving fast versus going out with your friends 
and have and drinking excessively, there are levels of being responsible. So yes, we do want to discuss that with someone if necessary. And um, if you feel like you can't trust your spouse at all, or it's a good, or if you can't, um, it's a good idea to discuss it with someone. You may want to give med counsel a call. We work with men and women. And um, it's also a good idea to think about what feelings are coming up for you when, you when this behavior is happening. Is it, are you feeling ashamed? Are you feeling afraid? Are you feeling embarrassed? Now um, we run out of time, officially. Thank you. I did my best. Uh, the, 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 always do your best. Thank you. We appreciate that. Why don't we ask the husbands the same uh, question? How do I get my husband to behave more responsible? Just to be clear, I'm asking the question for somebody else. How do I get my irresponsible husband to behave more responsibly? In the 12-step program, they use a serenity prayer. Uh, that, that I'm going to alter it, the uh, content to match the um, subject over here. God grant me the serenity to accept the people I cannot change, the courage to change the one I can, and the wisdom to know it's me. It's completely impossible to change another human being. And I will ask the mothers here just to think about, even, even the fathers, feeding a baby jar or whatever it is, the beech nut or, or whatever, uh, food to a baby in the, the high chair. And the baby doesn't want to eat. And he keeps his mouth closed. And you have to, you know, see, you know, you have to fashpiel the kid and get him busy with, you know, with uh, airplanes and, and trucks and, uh, and the plastic tchotchkes from the kitchen. And then the kid becomes distracted and he's not concentrating on holding his mouth closed. So he lets it hang open and you're right there with the spoon and there it goes. And you have to be very careful because if you get the spoon in too far, the rest of the dinner goes out. So Rabbi Tversky, husbands are like babies, is what you're saying. <laughs> no, no, I'm talking about the chicken oh, piece. If it goes in too shallow, it dribbles down the chin and you're right back to where you started from. Mothers, some fathers, get it really good, but you get it far enough in to get the, the swallow reflex without the gag reflex. Success. You've, you've succeeded in getting the food into the baby's stomach, but you did not control because the swallow reflex was not voluntary. It's a reflex. It's an involuntary reaction. So what you did is you tricked the system, but you did not control. And if we cannot control a six-month-old baby in the high chair, how do you think you're going to control an adult? So the first thing is that you're not going to do it by, by putting any effort into, making, into changing them. What you can do is to, make the, to, to set the environment so that it's conducive to the change happening, so that uh, many times if I would have somebody who was a, a drug addict, an alcoholic, and seriously into it, I would begin by having the wife go for treatment and getting her own recovery and getting her own peace of mind. This is not about breaking the marriage. It's about, about enticing him. Hey, you know what? I see that this person has real peace of mind. Yeshiva does. I want some of that. And what you do is you basically, you're inviting 
rather than forcing change. Because when you force change, you get what Newton forgot to say when he made his three laws of physics. But the law of emotion is that for every bit of confrontation, there's an equal and opposite amount of resistance. And Isaac Newton forgot that one. Hmm. We need to name it after somebody. But, um, but Rabbi Dr. Tversky, principal. Uh, with, with that, I'm going to turn it over to Rabbi Schaefer. Tell us, how do you get your irresponsible husband to behave more responsibly? And I, I think it's all been said. And it's that, that really, that's, that's the essence of it. You can't. You can't do it, give it up. Um, you, you know, you try, you try, you try, and you realize it doesn't work. Now, the problem is usually we get so stubborn and we try, we try, we try, and we keep trying, and we blame everything but the reality. You can't do it. It doesn't, uh, I think we said it, it doesn't, it doesn't work. You know, one thing I love about these questions is because they're anonymous, people can ask what they really feel. So, Rabbi Dr. Torsky, the next question that we have from one of our anonymous attendees is, how do I get my wife to treat me like an adult? <laughs> Challenging question, because the, the, uh, the problem that you're going to have over there is that the husband and the wife are going to define that completely differently. They're not going to be on the same page. The wife will say, I'm treating him like an adult. And the husband's going to say, I'm being treated like a little, like a little child. And uh, not 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 being able to 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 put the details to this, so that we can actually see the the contrast is going to is is going to stop the the process from working. If you want to be treated as an adult, behave like one. Now there are other outside issues that will affect these things, and the the place for that conversation is not necessarily in a room like this where we're talking to people who live in the community, but it's more talking to the, to the, to the people who are in the mental health field. Because there are numerous issues that people have that impair their ability to, to maintain the kind of social interactions with a spouse. And I've had numerous, numerous consultations over the years of couples where one of them is seriously psychiatrically impaired, whatever that may mean, it can mean many, many different things, and that literally doing all the work, if you were to address this as a marital problem, you're going to spin your wheels and you're going to get absolutely nowhere, because until you deal with the, with the, with the mental health issue, you're not going to be able to repair this from the relationship perspective. Thank you. Before I turn to the other panelists, um, Judo, we have one, two, three, four, five seats available in the first two rows uh, for women who would like to sit. So I just want to encourage folks to come to the front. There's five seats available. Folks should not be shy. Everyone's always afraid to sit too close to me. I promise you that uh, I use Listerine before this event. So it will be a very pleasant uh, experience. Does anyone else uh, want to weigh, weigh in on that on the panel. Uh, how do I get my wife to treat me like an adult? Does anyone else want to jump in on that? Um, so that's not the part I want to jump in on. Mm -hmm. I just want to follow up to what Rabbi Dr. Tversky said about getting help when you need it. Um, so I know the community believes that only people in private practice are competent. So I just want you to know that's not true. Um, there are many wonderful therapists who work in clinics. 
whether it's Jewish Board or any of the other ones. And as Dr. Rabbi Dr. Torsky said, if you get help for yourself, then things can significantly improve. So um, we've come a long way in the community. I mean, Baruch Hashem, we used to have to like, people would hide, they wouldn't wait in the waiting room. Now people bravely say, I want to get better. I want a quality of life. So don't hesitate to get help, whether it's a Jewish board or anywhere else. Can I weigh in on that? Sure. Actually, so I, I do want to mention something on this point. I deal with couples on a regular basis. And as Rabbi Torsky said, and it really it's, it's to support this point, it, marriage is an institution, but it's not a hospital. If one of the spouses are unhealthy, the marriage can't work. The reason why it can't work is because there's, you don't have the two parties on any level that they can join together, and until you deal with that particular issue, and it doesn't necessarily have to be a psychiatric issue, it could be a psychological, it could be an emotional issue, but oftentimes, when couples come to me, it is not a marital problem. I'll say to them right away, this has nothing to do with your marriage. This has to do with one individual, and until you deal with that, you're not going to repair the marriage because it's not a marriage problem. So it's very important to be aware of that and, and be able to identify it properly and met counsel or wherever you're going to go to get that help. Thank you, Reverend Schaefer. I do want to just point out to Faye's point, I think actually that for a lot of folks what we're finding is that especially uh, post-COVID, some of the wonderful professionals like to work for not-for-profits. The hours are better, the collegiality is better, the level of professionalism and community development and uh, continuing education is better. And I think that's actually why it's sort of rare in the space where you get some tremendous talent that works in the mental health world and not-for-profits, so whether it is uh, the Jewish Board or OHAL or of course at Met Council. And one of the unique things about Met Council as well, which folks should know, is that while the overwhelming majority of our clients in the Family Violence Department are women, we certainly have male clients as well, and folks should be comfortable uh, calling uh, as well. Faye, back to you, I want to ask you uh, this question, which comes from an anonymous person in the room tonight. I don't feel like my husband respects me, and it really bothers me. If I ask him for respect, it won't be real. We're very different natures, and I feel like my husband looks down at me for a bunch of reasons, including being loud and talkative. What can I do to gain his respect? So I'm a little stickler about language. So if you translate loud and talkative to social and friendly, it sounds so much better. Um, so we need to have self-awareness and self-confidence and he might be fine with you being loud and talkative or social and friendly, and you might think that you're over the top. Also, noticing, is he critical of everyone? Does he have no rub because he knows the answer to every Shiloh? Is he only critical of you? People who don't respect anyone, um, we talked about you can't change anybody else. If they don't respect anybody, then they're probably don't have the self-awareness to even see that they should change. Um, taking responsibility for someone else's problems is not going to be a good plan. So um, understanding yourself, when you think about people who say, oh, my wife is OCD, maybe she's organized and efficient and clean. Again, they, you know, how you look at things can be so different and can frame everything. And one person's um, cleanliness is another person's chaos. So earning respect, first you have to respect yourself. You have to be proud of yourself. 
You have to know what you're good at and what you're not good at. None of us are good at everything. I mean, if you are, kohakabod. I can list what I'm not good at, but we won't do that. Three minutes. Um, but and, and don't change to please someone else. If there's something about yourself that you're not comfortable with, work on it. The Godolin told us it'll take 30 years, so kohakabod. Um, but understanding who you are and respecting yourself. And again, if your spouse doesn't respect anyone, then you might want to call med counsel um, because that's a real issue. We all need to have respect for other people. Otherwise, we're going nowhere fast. Thank you, Faye. Anyone else on the panel want to weigh in? I don't feel like my husband respects me and it really bothers me. What would you recommend? A brief vignette of a couple that uh, came in that this was an issue that the husband was uh, expecting a lot of respect from his wife, and uh, she was not uh, she was not forthcoming. And when I met with them individually, I asked each of them what their chosan or kala teacher taught them about respect. And here is where I got very frightened because the husband said. My husband teacher told me that my wife needs to respect me. And the young woman said, my college teacher said, your husband, if he wants respect, needs to earn it. Now, while both of those messages are true, they should have swapped. And the husband to have been told, you want respect, earn it. And the wife should have been taught, respect your husband. One of the things that's interesting about understanding relationships is that the Chacham Mikalodim Shleim HaMalach tells us in Mishlei that and the way in which two people sustain a relationship is that A's love for B sustains B's love for A, B's love for A sustains A's love for B. So that the affection and the relationship, the, the, the love that goes on between a husband and wife is a bi-directional relationship. And it's a process that has to continue going. When we have one person insisting, no, you have to do this for me, and it's, it's something which is one-sided, they may be entitled to ask for it, but don't think that that's going to contribute to a, a relationship. That's not what marriage is. Marriage is not about the wife respecting the husband. Marriage is about the way that they interact. There is mutual respect going, going on constantly. Thank you, Reverend Korsky. Anyone else want to weigh in on that? I would, I would like to weigh in. You know, one of the most difficult problems we have in marriage is that we are of opposite genders. And what happens in your world is very accepted and becomes the norm. And I find this to be a very real problem. You see, men and women act very differently. And I'll give you a good example. When, I, when the first Rules in a Parsha book came out, I needed it uh, a very, it was basically edited. I needed a last copy edit. So I asked my mother-in-law if she would look it over the last galleys. And she did an excellent job. And I was going to write an acknowledgement. I would thank my mother-in-law for, uh, for <coughs> editing the book, but there's nothing that gives a mother-in-law more joy than correcting a son-in-law so I don't have to thank her. I didn't write it. I didn't write it. I didn't write it. My, years later, my wife told my mother-in-law that you, you should have written it. It's cute. It's cute. Anyway, here's the point. And many times, mother-in-laws get a bad reputation. Why is that? 
I believe one of the reasons is because a mother-in-law is a maternal instinct. She's good. She's giving. The young woman <coughs> brings home the young man, and the mother-in-law, future mother-in-law, sees a fine young man. But even a fine young man could do better. So she does everything in her power to make him even better, to improve him. He can improve, improve, more improvement. And inadvertently, what she's doing is she's treating him with a tremendous amount of disrespect. In a man's world, for sure, unsolicited advice is very, very ill-received. Many times in a woman's world, it's not so ill-received. As a matter of fact, if a woman's baking a cake and you know how to do the recipe better, if your girlfriend is, you know, is making a mistake or something, you help her, she'd feel happy and you feel happy. But typically, in a man's world, it's very <coughs> ill-received. And one of the great secrets of marriage is to learn that what you like doesn't define reality. Your experience is your experience, but if it turns out that your husband doesn't like that or your wife doesn't like it, your job is to understand their world, to climb into their experience and realize what matters to them. This issue of honor of covet is a big deal, typically more to men than to women, but more than anything, understanding what your spouse enjoys, what they don't enjoy. If in fact your husband seems to overreact to something, Instead of saying he's overreacting, it's time maybe to step back and say, gee, that's curious. Why does he react that way? And when you begin climbing into his world, you see that he has a different reality. He experiences things differently. And when you begin to explore his world, you might just see that he's rational, sane, but working with a different set of criteria. And you may come to a much better shalom bias because you have a much better understanding. Thank you, Rabbi Schaefer. Next question uh, for Esther: How do you deal? How do you deal with a spouse that's very critical? So pretty much this was just answered. I just want to add that criticism is usually coming from someone who's in pain, and um, we would want to start by being curious and just seeing it from the other's point of view, as Rabbi Shapir said. Not necessarily, you know, of course. Our natural response to criticism is to just get angry and defensive, so this is going to be hard. But, um, and we don't enjoy being criticized. We all experience it. But there is a difference between being criticized, criticism, and a person being made to feel dumb, worthless, like you can't do anything right for yourself. You're made to feel like you deserve to hurt, be hurt, or, or mistreated. So if you feel like you're walking on eggshells around your spouse because you know, you're know you afraid of disappointing them, then that's a concern. So we want to have dialogue, but there cannot be consequences for someone who's asserting her point of view. If you have a point of view and you're asserting yourself and, and you're being given um, the silent treatment for a couple of weeks or um, rage, and you're feeling unsafe, then it's time to call my counsel. <laughs> Thank you very much. Rabbi Dr. Torsky, I'm, I'm going to use my moderator's privilege to ask a question that I have, uh, something that you reference that I think is relevant to folks. In, it's not, it's not uh, directly for folks in the room, but everybody in the room knows someone or potentially has someone who eventually will be in Shadokim. My oldest is 15 years old, but it's relevant to everyone. And I'm curious, from your vantage point, what advice do you have to people who are about to enter Shaduchim as to what to look for in a spouse to make sure that there aren't these issues that keep coming up? And once again, these are people who are dating anywhere from one date to a few weeks to a few months. And then potentially, what sort of preparations should there be for people who are eventually taking that step? 
I'm going to be the guideline and answer the last question first. Um, the, there's three major ingredients that go into being prepared for marriage. Ingredient number one is role models. Were our parents positive and wholesome role models for us? What other, what other models did we, were we uh, exposed to prior to marriage and we should have an idea of what marriage should be? Second, Musser. Now, Musser, I do not mean Musser as in listening to Musser Shmuz or listening to, to Musser, a Musser Shir from the various websites. That's not what I mean by that. And I don't mean in the uh, yeshiva system where they will have a Musa Seder usually for some in the vicinity of a half an hour every day. I don't mean that either. I mean Musa where there is somebody, there is the Asel Chavav, where somebody has a Rebbe that they're close to who can guide them so that they can work on their own personal growth and their own, their own self-improvement. Everybody, by virtue of the fact that we're members of the human race, have imperfections. A cow is as perfect when it's, when, when it's five years old as it was when it was born. Got bigger, but that's about it. Never improved. There's no such thing as an animal becoming a better animal. Um, what, what does happen with a human being is that we're created to be imperfect, and we, when we spend the days of our lives working on bringing ourselves closer to the ultimate ultimate perfection, which we can never achieve, because only HaKadosh Baruch Hu can be perfect. So recognizing that we, we are going to have our weaknesses and our flaws, our defects, we need to do something with our, during our formative years, where we address that, we study it, we learn about it, and we learn how to get the help for it. And sometimes your mashkiach, your rebbe, can be excellent. These these are these are very often precious resources. Sometimes not, and the mobility of going from yeshiva A to B for one year, for two years, whatever, um, uh, sort of minimizes that. But we we do need to have that. And then the, the third element, of course, is the preparation. And we know someone is getting engaged. We want to talk to them about preparing them as a chosen or as a a kala, and there's a, there's while there have been major strides over the last number of years, there's many more uh, many more improvements necessary so that the uh, so that the system can work an awful lot better. Thank you. Anybody else want to weigh in before we? Yes. Okay, Schaefer. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to weigh in on the first one. Not that it's a golden, but now first. So um, one thing I highly recommend. <coughs> When young people go out, there's the paper test and the Bashar test. The paper test should be done before you go out. In the paper test, you're looking primarily, in my understanding, for one thing. Is there anything that you're not going to see on the date that is a part of the person? Is there some psychological instability, some unwholesomeness? Is there something that's not going to show on the date? Because typically, we human beings are very good at hiding ourselves. And not to say that people are trying, but everyone puts on their best show, and if any, no one is going to let all the secrets out. So therefore, before the date, it's the responsibility of the parents or whatever the adults involved to do the paper test to see, in broad general strokes, are you guys holding the same place? 
Are there any skeletons in the closet? Anything that you're not going to see on the date? And then when you go out, you do the Bashar test. The Bashar test really is up to the young couple themselves. Does it work? Does it click? Is there a commonality? But you see, you're letting them do the decision-making process of, is it a fit? It provided that what you see is what you get. Before the, one of the key issues is you don't always see that, and that's where the paper test comes in, where before the date, you want to make sure that you know anything that's possible to know that's not going to be seen on the date. And then when they're on the date, you're looking primarily for one thing to see if they're holding it about the same place, is there commonality, does it seem to go well, do you look forward to the dates? And by the way, folks, I get these questions on a regular basis. I've been going out six dates, to, should I continue, should I break up, should I? There's one single question. My Rebbe used to ask this question over and over. <clears throat> do you enjoy your company? Is it going the right way? Do you feel comfortable? Is there a certain commonality? But how do I know she's going to be the right one? You can't know. Most questions in life you clearly can't know. <clears throat> your job is to see if you're aligned in the same place, if you're holding the same place, and then there's a sort of commonality that just sort of feels right, it just feels like you're aligned, that means you pass the Bashar test, you pass the paper test, pass the Bashar test, and then you know that you've done your part, and then it's up to Hashem. Oh, boy. Yeah. Thank you. We're going to take questions in the end. Uh, Faye, I think you wanted to go next. Thank you. I did. Um, so years ago, someone told me this. She said, you don't ask a Rosh Hashiva or a principal about a boy or a girl. You ask the lady who works in the kitchen, how does she get treated by this boy or this girl? You ask the janitor, does this kid pick up their paper or leave it there and wait for the janitor to pick it up? That's showing respect for people. So that's one of the things you want to look for. How does a person deal with adversity? Everybody has adversity, even if you're little and you're in third grade and you get picked on. How did they manage that? And what skills did their parents teach them to manage adversity? Because Life has bumps in the road, and we all need to deal with them. And when you get married, you want to be a partner with your person to go through those bumps, because you can't fly over them. Oh, and who are their friends? Do they have nice friends? Any friends? Yeah, I was going to say, do they have good relationships with people and friends? Thank you very much. Arisha, let me ask you this question, back to the audience questions. What can you do if your spouse has a different value system than you, and your spouse, using the words that were given to us here, hates you for your value system? So your spouse has a different value system, and they hate you for your value system. Okay, those are pretty strong words. So here's the following case. I just read what's in front of me, just for the record. Yes. <laughs> okay, a young woman comes home, it's Yom Kippur. Two o'clock in the afternoon, she walks into her apartment, and on the couch, she sees a husband, ham sandwich in this hand, cigar in this hand. He takes a bite of ham sandwich, takes a smoke on the cigar. What does she do? She does exactly what any self-respecting woman does. Stop that right now, Jim Kippur, what are you doing, ham? What's wrong with you? Now, I don't have to share with you the fact that obviously he's very off the mark. But I'd like to share with you she's also missing the point. You see, <clears throat> when you get married, you are equal partners in this thing called marriage. Now, if you find yourself in a place where this marriage isn't what you contracted for, you may have to dissolve the marriage. It may be time to end it. But as long as you're married, you're equal partners in this thing called marriage. As a Rebbe, as a mentor, as a teacher, she might be doing a very good job. But that's not her role. Her role is to be best friends who love each other, equal partners in this thing called marriage. Friends don't demand. Friends don't command. Friends don't say, you stop that now because I said so. You see, there's a sort of attitude that seems to be very pervasive, that when your husband or your wife does something wrong, it's your job to stand up and set them straight and really let them know. 
Now again, there are many situations where that is appropriate. If you're a Rebbe, if you're a mentor, if you're a rabbi, if you're a mother, it might be appropriate. But in a marriage that is very, very destructive because your best friends will love each other. And understanding that relationship is essential. So when you say the word hate, <clears throat> because of different value systems, to me that means the basic rubric of the marriage is greatly, greatly impaired there. And that's something that requires outside help. You need to, if, if, again, if that word's as serious as you meant it, I would highly recommend you speak to somebody because you absolutely must get an alignment there. Meaning you're gonna have different values. You're gonna have different things. You're gonna have different ways of looking at things. That's okay. But the minute it gets to the point where you actually feel your spouse hates you because of your values, you guys are not in a good place and it requires some outside help at that point. Thank you, Rabbi Schaefer. Anybody else want to weigh in on spouse hating their value system? Okay, we're going to move on to the next uh, question. This is a question for Rabbi Dr. Frisky. What do you do if you find out later on that you disagree on something major regarding how to raise your children? Which I guess you always find out later on because when you get married, originally you probably don't have children. So, fair question. Some years ago, I consulted to a couple, a very tiredic couple. The husband had a share in the morning, a share at night, they were at home, and he went to work during the day. The wife was listening to Torah tapes, it predates uh, all these uh, websites and phone lines. Several sessions in, they shared with me one of their really hot topics that they disagree about. <coughs> He's a Yankees fan and she's a Mets fan. <laughs> Clearly. You should have asked that on the first day, just to right. be fair. <laughs> it's on the list. Right. Rabbi Schaefer mentioned, right? You need to understand. It's a quick background check. Who are you rooting for? Paper test. Um, clearly, they were unable to disagree on something that really does not conduct their home. They couldn't even disagree on that without it becoming an issue of me against you. So this was not about the Mets and the Yankees. Um, when a couple disagrees on a matter of chinuch for the children, A is there's always an option since there's a lot of guidance from, from, the, from the title world and the title leaders, there's always people that you can ask as a third party to say, hey, because of Shlishi, I say A, you say B, let's go get an objective third party that's not going to be biased towards me, towards you, and is going to be more interested in, uh, in, 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 uh, a, in an outcome for the, for the children. I did a, an informal survey at a Nefesh conference many years ago, and I asked those, those professionals, those therapists, work with couples, have you ever encountered a couple that was on the verge of divorce because they disagreed which yeshiva the children should be sent to? And of course, you have the chesidish version, you have the litish version, but it's exactly the same, exactly the same thing. Nobody was able to identify a single case that they ever had of a couple whose marriage was on the rocks because they disagreed if the children should go to Vision of Three Bells or Tarot Vedas or the Mirror. Why not? These are serious things. If you think about it, they're, they're saying, I want to take the scenic route or I want to take the faster route. They're not quarreling, they're not disagreeing about the goal. 
The goal is, I want the best for my kid. And if I believe that the best chinuch is going to be in Yeshiva A, or a school A, then, that, then that's what I'm going to be pushing for. These do not become shalom bias matters. They become shalom bias matters when the, un, the unspoken sentence is, and I got to win this one. And as soon as you have victory in, in between a husband and a wife, you're having somebody who's going to lose, and nobody wants to be married to a loser. Thank you. Esther, do you want to weigh in on this as well? Um, just to say that even our Avosani Ramos disagreed on major kind of issues. Abraham Avino and Sarah and Menu. Uh, Sarah wanted to send Shmal away, and Abraham disagreed, and Hashem had to intervene and say to listen to Sarah. So we see that even in the Torah, they disagreed. But it's how to disagree. We know that they didn't have an argument. But the, it's, it's very important that when we raise our children, they need to see that our home is secure and happy and safe and that the parents are not differing that in, in, in that way. That they can discuss it, they can go to a rough, but the children need to feel the home is a secure place. Thank you. Professor Schaefer? Yeah, I would like to echo something that Mrs. Uh, Wilbur uh, said. So <clears throat> any disagreement that you guys have will have far more damage to your children if they see you bickering than any issue in terms of disciplining the child. What I mean by that is simply like this. If you guys, let's say one parent is more rigid and one <laughs> parent is more lenient, I guarantee that the difference of whether you're too lenient with your child or too strict with your child will not have anywhere near the damage to your child's upbringing to where if they see the parents fighting. Especially when your kids are little, you guys, the parents are 10 feet tall, you're the center of gravity, and if the essence of their life begins fraying, if they see mommy and tati fighting, that everything about their entire existence becomes questioned. Their entire security, their entire emotional balance, that is probably the most damaging thing that parents can do. And I believe that any difference in opinion in terms of ashkafa or disciplining or any issue that you may disagree on as a couple, the quibbling is going to end up being far more damaging to your child than any being too lenient or too strict. But I have one very important follow-up to that. When one of our children was, uh, we were in Rochester for many years, I was a in high school there, and one of our kids was having a little issue with the school, so they recommended we go to see uh, Dr. Underberg. Dr. Underberg had been the head of University of Rochester Psychology, and she was then working with parents. And we, my wife and I went for a couple of sessions, and she gave us some tips on how to deal with our child. The woman was brilliant beyond description. I sat there taking copious notes. After we solved this problem, I said to my wife, I want to continue. We went for years, literally once a week we would go. This woman, had, she had been a student of Dr. Chaim Ganat, and she was brilliant. Her understanding of the child, the nature of the child, what the child needs was phenomenal. I begged her to write a book. I told her then we were going to write the book together. Unfortunately, she died before the book was written. But in any case, I learned a very important lesson. And that is, why do you feel that you, your way to parenting a child is correct? Let's imagine we have a situation. The husband wants it one way. The wife wants it another way. Ask each of them which way is correct. My way is, if you're being too tolerant of the child, you're going to destroy it. If you can be too strict, you're going to destroy the child. How do you know your way is right? I'd like to share with you the vast majority of our parenting technique is based on one thing, my personality. 
If I'm by nature rigid, that's how I'm going to bring up my child. If by nature I'm very laid back, that's how I'm going to bring up my child. And if you study most parents, the way they parent their child is based on their temperament, their nature. So whenever you have a debate with your, with your spouse about what's the right way, the first question to ask yourself is, is it worth it? Meaning if we're gonna end up in a fight, it's gonna be far more damaging to the child. But the second question is, am I right? <laughs> Meaning, is it double? It's not me, it's a machine. Am I, Sorry. Continue. Continue. Am I right? Meaning to say, is it 100% correct that the nature of this child is he needs a discipline? Is it 100% true that the nature of this child is such that being too strict is damaging? How do you know you're correct? And I'd like to share with you, it's not so simply correct, and most likely it's not so true. So the bottom line is, I think there's, a, there's an awful lot to be said for giving in and raising a child together. But again, as Dr. Tversky said, understanding that it's the relationship. It's never the, really the issues. It's always the underlying relationship that determines the success of the marriage and how you deal with stuff is, is the key to a successful marriage. Thank you. Hey, let me ask you a question from one of our attendees. I'm a very busy mother between working and taking care of the home. How do I organize my time to have the right time for my husband and my kids? And yourself. <clears throat> Um, at the risk of that old trite example, you have to put the oxygen mask on yourself before you put it on the person next to you on the airplane. If you don't do things for yourself, you're not going to have energy for anybody else. Um, I'm not suggesting you're going on weekly retreats. Um, we all have incredibly busy lives. So if you're blessed to have children, you need to figure out who needs what. That whole it's fair thing where your kids are counseling, counting how many sprinkles they have on the cookie. Sometimes one person needs 10 sprinkles and somebody else only needs two. That's fair depending on what we all need. Um, our husbands and wives are adults. So we need to figure out how much is enough and sometimes we want more. And it's okay to say to children, I'm talking to mommy now, I'm talking to Tati now, I'll be with you in a few minutes. We all need to learn how to delay gratification. Um, dividing up our day is going to look different every day. Um, I remember coming home from work one day and I was in the car, I had a really stressful day and I was driving the kids home and I said, if I were you, I wouldn't talk to me until we're home and I'm in my civilian clothes, which meant I took off my glasses, my hair, my shoes, put on a snood and a house coat, and then I could exhale and be civil. If they were going to talk to me earlier, I was just going to be grouchy, and it had nothing to do with them. So being self-aware and being able to say to the other person, like, not now, let's give it a few minutes, I'm doing homework with her. I'll get to you in a minute. You can do whatever your little heart desires as long as it's within normal limits. Um, and, and the relationship with our spouse, that's the one that, God willing, is going to be there after everybody else starts their adult life, right? We want to give our children roots and wings. So when they have their wings and leave, we're going to be home with our spouse. And that's the relationship we really need to nurture and take care of, and as my colleague said, and then the children will be healthier because, you know, the best gift you can give to your child is to love their other parent. Thanks. Does anybody else want to weigh in on this? 
Rabbi Dr. Tversky? It's actually, it's a double-barrel benefit because the children are being given not just the stability of seeing that the parents are a parental unit, but they're also having the role model of the parents caring for each other. And that's a very, very precious lesson for them to learn. It was, it, it, it was, it, it, it was precious when we got this from our parents, and it'll be precious for the children having learned it by having seen it by us. I think this is one of the one of the most important things that parents need to find time to spend with each other as as frequently. I mean, obviously, within reason, but um, just finding those little bits of time, take a walk, um, have kiddush with your husband in the morning when the kids are sleeping, if that ever happens. Um, you know, when they're in bed and you have time, something. Just any. You're going to have to be creative. You're going to have to really. And you, there's going to be one spouse that's going to want it more than the other. So you're going to have to work at it. But it's worth every bit of time and effort that you put into it to nurture your relationship with your spouse because your children are going to gain. It's, it's raising the next generation, the next healthy generation. It's going to come from your relationship with your spouse. Thank you. Uh, next question for Rabbi Schaefer. The question is, uh, when I first got married, we were excited and happy, and over the years, we've grown apart. Why did we grow apart? Okay, it sounds like a follow-up on what Mrs. Wu was saying. Okay, I get the phone call. It sounds something like this. Rabbi Schaefer, thank you for the call. Um, I, I need to speak to you. What's up? It's my husband. What's the problem? Well, he's responsible. He's, he, he learns, he dominates, he's good with the kids. I say, sounds, sounds pretty good, what's the problem? The problem is, the problem is, I don't love him. I don't love him. How long are you married? 10 years, how many kids? Five kids. So what do you do? Ladies, what do you do? You get the phone call, I don't love my husband. So what do you do? Anybody? <laughs> so I'll tell you what I do. I ask the question, I always ask. <clears throat> Madam, tell me, last month, <clears throat> How many times did you and your husband go out? Well, go out doesn't mean to a bar mitzvah, to a wedding, to your mother-in-law. How many times did you and your husband go out to just enjoy each other's company, to be together? We didn't. The month before that, how many times did you go out? We didn't. The month before that, how many times? The month before them, I stopped by about eight or nine, and then I'll say the words, Madam, don't you understand? You're like two ships in the night. If you're not going to spend quality time together, if you're not going to spend time together as a couple, you're going to drift apart. It's inevitable. And then I say those radical words, ladies and gentlemen, is everybody sitting here? Everybody sitting down? Okay. A couple should be going out once a week. <clears throat> one second. <clears throat> one second. Once a week. <clears throat> not once a month. Not once a year. A couple should be going out once a week. Every week they should be going out. Rabbi, are you crazy? Who could afford it? And who could afford the babysitter? And my husband just started a new business and he's way too busy. Anybody hear the pushback? So I have an answer to that. What is the courts for alimony, for court costs, and divorce lawyer? How busy are you if you're running two households and you're trying to then work things out? It is a lot cheaper, a lot more fun, and a whole lot more effective to spend time working on your marriage. And one of the necessary ingredients is to be going out regularly. If once a week sounds impossible, ladies and gentlemen, it's not. But you can find a way. More than anything, you have to steal back your marriage. 
You have to make sure that you spend time together, you have to bond, you have to connect, and there's nothing other than spending time together that will ensure that. And along the lines of what Mrs. Wilbur was saying, I'd like to stress one point. You have to steal back your marriage from your children. The greatest gift you could give your children is a secure marriage, but that requires time. And it means going out, it means spending time with your spouse, even if Ruchi doesn't know every Ramban and Chumash, even if your son doesn't get 100 on the math test, they'll be fine. But if your marriage starts to fray, then all bets are off. The single greatest investment you can make in your children's health and happiness is your marriage, but the only way to do that is to spend time together. You have to spend time as a couple. There are many parts to it, but certainly at least the date night and everything else that goes in, along with a couple being in love, it requires the time needed to do it. Thank, thank you, Rabbi Schaefer. Anybody else want to weigh in? Rotorsky. There was a book written a number of years ago. Uh, the author's name is John Chapman. The name of the book is Five Love Languages. I'm sure many of us have heard of it. And then there, there are five love languages for uh, the airline pilots, and five love languages for, for sanitation engineers. So there is a there is a from version uh, that was co-authored with uh, John Chapman and a from uh, a from mental professional. The the purpose of love languages. I'm, I want to go through it very quickly. You can you can you can research this very very easily. Um, but uh, the 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 premise is that within a marriage, the husband and the wife need to be conveying the message of love to each other continually. And as I mentioned earlier, it's a bi-directional thing, so that they each have to do this. Now, the problem that there is, and you know, it's even it's even a an English phrase. Uh, this doesn't talk to me, right? Do you like chocolate cake? It doesn't talk to me. I don't carry on conversations with chocolate cakes. But when, when we're talking about understanding a, a, a talking language, we have to know that the person that we're communicating with understands that language. And we each have preferences. So the five love languages that are listed in the book is number one, um, words of endearment, the order doesn't matter saying nice things to each other. Second thing is gifts. Third thing is spending time together. A fourth thing is acts of, of service. A fifth thing is physical touch. Now, if there's a, the, the book comes with a questionnaire for, for the men, a questionnaire for the women. There's either 1920 questions, and it gives you this, you know, this, this, uh, this way of how to score it. And you can discover for yourself what are the languages that you respond to best. So that some people don't care about spending time together, but they do care about gifts. Or they don't care about gifts, and they care about acts of service, etc. What happens now is that I would have to take this questionnaire and my wife. Now, I take her, her questionnaire, I look at her score, and she needs acts of service. That means instead of buying her gifts, I need to be more concerned with taking out the garbage or helping with various other chores in the house. That's what talks to her. And she needs to know what things talk to me. And that's the language that she has to communicate with me. The bottom line is, and the reason this is 
this is relevant here besides being a very profound thought, is that the marriages that don't that 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 don't develop the distance are the are the relationships that are nurtured with with this kind of glue, with this kind of adhesive that connect the two people on a continual basis. And when that's not happening, there's there's going to be conflict. I want fleshes for supper. I want milchiks. There's golden opportunities constantly. And if we and if we don't have that those forces that bring us together with these positive messages going both ways, the drifting apart is able to happen. Thank you. I just looked it up. The Five Love Languages by Dr. Chapman is available on Amazon for $7.57. In case folks are interested in ordering it. On Prime, we'll get it tomorrow. Jewish marriage initiative. Great. Um, Final, final question as we're wrapping up I, uh, for Rabbi Dr. Torsky, and then I'll turn to Esther Talbaum, which is, how do I know if my problems in my marriage are quote-unquote normal? Or how do I know if my problems are not normal and I need to go to a professional or a rough? And, in addition to that, how do you deal with the situation when one spouse refuses to go for help? One of the things that we have in our community um, is, aside from having a growing population of from mental health professionals, we have a variety of other people in positions where they are, are they would they could call themselves being in a helping profession. So there's askanim, there's rabbanim, there's rashi yeshiva, there's shalom bayis machos, plus plus plus. And the challenge that we have is that when somebody ends up in front of a mental health professional, there is a possibility, if the problem exists, that somebody's going to be able to nail the issue. Um, so that I, I'm just flashing back on a, on a consultation that I had with someone in the Jewish community. It was, it was, it was a non-Jew, but it was describing a whole series of, of symptoms and this and that. And then I said, does, there was a family member, does that person use drugs? They said, right, of course. And it, they didn't come in saying so-and-so is getting high. They came in describing, you know, the irritability and the this and the that. You know, so that, that, um, that, that there are, are times in which a mental health professional is in a better position to be able to identify some of the other underlying issues and to be able to hopefully focus on the right kind of, of intervention. At the same time, in the, in the medical world, there's doctors, there's nurses, there's, there's practitioners, there's a whole array of, of medical professionals. But there's also first responders so that if somebody has whatever sort of a medical uh, uh, incident, they, they, the first they're going to call is Hatzalo or 911 or somebody who's going to be first responder. Well, in this realm as well, and particularly in Shalvais, it's really, really prominent, where people, instead of going to the mental health professionals as the first stop, they're going to make the first stops by any of these other abundant, askanim, etc. And you know, here's here's where 
they need to be appropriately trained so that they will be able to identify red flags. This is something that's bigger than I can chew. I'm going to hand this one off. And a lot of them have professionals that they have connections with so that they have, that if, if there's such a, a Shiloh, they pick up the phone and they call, they, they, they call this a professional and they bounce the case off of them and they very often refer. So the first responders make a very, very big difference if they are appropriately trained. Some years ago, I was asked to speak for Hatsola here in Bar Park. It was two weeks before Purim, and they wanted a little additional training so that they're going to be prepared for the calls that they may go on over Purim for people who are intoxicated and those who have used drugs. And yes, there are people who decided that you're supposed to use drugs on Purim. I have no clue why. But at the same time, they needed to be they needed to be informed of of some of the additional issues that are not the typical um, uh, the, the typical cases that are being responded to by um, Hatzola. So sometimes you need to go a step above, or at least the first responders need to be in a position where they're where they're appropriately um, trained. Thank you very much. Esther, did you want to add to that as well? I wanted to address the idea of when one of the spouses refuses to go for help, I want to acknowledge that's very painful. And the one who is interested should go for help. They should go alone. It's possible that down the road, there will be a way to bring the other spouse in uh, for help. But one should know that one person can affect a great change in a marriage by just going uh, and making a small change. And that, because that will affect a chain reaction that, you know, if the, the other spouse may react very positively to the change that that person made just by going alone to that therapist. So we can affect great change by going alone to a therapist. I have experienced this with clients. Um, either way, by going in alone, you'll learn strategies to help you manage the dilemma. And I would especially encourage someone who uh, to go for help if other if they're feeling if they're feeling a lack of trust, um, isolation from family or friends, belittling. Sometimes couples therapy is not appropriate, may not be the first approach, because therapy should never feel scary for someone uh, about what could happen after the therapy session. So we want, you know, we want people to know that. Also, um, of course, I just want to say that we want people to have a relationship with the rub. That's a wonderful thing, and it's very helpful to managers. Um, but when, again, when things take a dynamic, a uh, dangerous dynamic, we then have professional help is appropriate. So feel free to reach out to Net Council if there's an increased warning signs of, yeah, um, you know, any of the above that we've talked about, rage and validation. And again, I wouldn't want to put someone who's feeling victimized in couples counseling. I would want to rectify the power dynamic first. Thank you. And just to share with folks that number, as Rabbi 
Dr. Torsky pointed out, in case of true emergency, and it is a serious situation, you certainly should call Med Council for free and confidential advice. The Med Council hotline is 212-453-9618. That's 212-453-9618. More information at medcouncil.org. We're wrapping up. I just want to ask everyone, we're going to start from right to left, 60 seconds, final thoughts on today's program. Anything that you feel like you really wanted to say, you want to get it out now, 60 seconds or less. Please. Take what happens away. when a spouse brings up things that happened five, ten years ago? We're going to get to that in a second. I just want to give the panelists a chance to uh, to wrap up to wrap up with their final thoughts. Thank um, you. I want to wish everyone much hatslacha in your marriages and in your children's marriages, and um, just give a bracha to everybody, and myself included, that we should just have elevated levels of shalom bias in our homes. Thank you. Babe? I wanted to thank Nahama Bax and Judah Zellemeyer and, of course, David and my council for hosting this. I want to compliment all of you for coming. Um, really wonderful. And you don't have to wait to be miserable. You can improve every single day. Just keep working at it. It's, you know, Rabbi Akiva, he watched the water drip, and the rocks got a little smoother. We can keep smoothing ourselves out. Thank you. I would, again, just conclude sort of the points here together. Don't change your spouse. Work on the relationship. Learn to accept another human being. Recognize that my reality doesn't define, my experience doesn't define reality. That's why I experience things and learn to accept your spouse. Those three things. Don't change your spouse. Work on the relationship and learn to accept another human being in your life. And Mitzvah Hashem, Hashem will help you create a beautiful marriage. Just following what I had said just before, communicating the positive affection in, in marriage on a constant, continuous basis is a very, very powerful ingredient to nurturing the relationship, and allowing it to, to grow, allowing it to be sustained. And it's the best thing we can have for the environment of our home and what we provide for our children. Thank you. I really just want to thank all of our tremendous panelists, and I want to thank everybody for coming out. It's really been an amazing, uh, amazing event. Uh, the one thing that I will reiterate in my moderator's privilege is Rabbi Dr. Tversky's point, which is uh, talk to anyone who's gotten divorced. They will tell you how traumatic, expensive, and life-altering that is. It really should be a true in case of emergency break glass kind of situation. Anything you can do to avoid that strongly encourage you and certainly encourage you to reach out to Met Council if you need help. And I want to thank everyone. I have to say I've had the privilege of being a part of hundreds of these. This has really been a tremendous evening. I want to thank the Chama and the entire team, everyone who came out tonight. This is really wonderful. We are keeping it on time. We're concluding at 9.35 p.m. If you need any help, you can come to metcouncil.org. We're going to stick around if you have any questions. Thank you very much for those who want to leave. And if you want to ask questions, you can come up and ask them. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you.